a man named Saul. Most importantly, he has remained loyal to God. We see this through many of the stories we've studied about David up until this point, and his faithfulness and trust in God has been exemplary. But now in this moment, when he is so close to becoming king, we see his character shine. If you were with us last weekend, you'll remember that we were in the last chapter of 1 Samuel where where the Lloyd's anointed Saul has taken his own life. As Mike helped us unpack this passage, we discovered that while Saul's death did take place on the battlefield, it was a decision of cowardice and selfishness, a decision made for fear of what may happen to him if he were discovered alive by the enemy, not taking into account the will of God who had brought Saul into the position of king in the first place. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel, and you'll have to forgive me, I forgot to look at what page number it is on the Pew Bibles, uh, but 2 Samuel, um, and we are just going to pick up um, right at the first chapter there, 2 Samuel. We're, we're picking up only two days after where we had left off last week in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, and Saul, uh, we know, has died, and David had been off defeating the Amalekites. So we begin in 1 Samuel reading the first 10 verses. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. Well, what happened? David asked. Tell me. He said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and have brought them here to my Lord. So I want to point something out uh, real quick before we move on. Um, And as we kind of follow up in this passage, most scholars agree um, that David would have been around the age of 30 um, when he became the king. Uh, We also know that historically, men had to be at least the age of 20 uh, before they could serve in the Israelite army. And when Samuel, way back when we first were looking about when Samuel came around to find David um, at the house of Jesse, uh, he was not, David was not with the rest of his brothers um, who had all been old enough to serve in the army. And so 
that helps us kind of pinpoint a little bit of how old David may have been before he became the king. Um, we know somewhere in between the ages of 12 and 19, but we, we know he couldn't be any older than 19 because he could not be serving in the army yet. So if you kind of think about that, um, and he didn't become king until 30, it had been at least a decade that David had been awaiting this promised throne that had been given to him by God. Um, and it could have been as much as 15, maybe 18 years. We're not quite sure. Um, but you can tell that there's anticipation and anxiousness for David to be able to come and serve on the throne of God. Um, so, well, not the throne of God. Sorry, that wouldn't be right. But on the throne that God had provided for his Israelites. So uh, we continue on. Knowing this about David, that this could be an anxious point for him, we continue reading with verse 11. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man, this messenger who had brought him the report, where are you from? I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you. And when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. So now in this passage, we have David, a man who had long awaited the throne that he has been promised, is now learning that the king is gone. He's dead. And that others who would possibly have claim to the throne have also lost their lives. So let's even put the throne aside for a second. Let's remember some of the ways that Saul had treated David over the last stories that we've been going over. Saul was not a good leader, and in some ways he wasn't even really a good person. And it seemed that David, of anybody, would have more reason to hate Saul because of these things. He had attempted on multiple occasions to have David killed, which caused, Saul, uh, caused, caused David to flee the land of Israel for a time until he knew that it was safe for him to return. So David, again, had as much reason to hate Saul and to rejoice at his death as anyone because then he would have an opportunity to pursue and take what had been promised to him. However, I want to stress for a moment the significance of David's innocence in Saul's death. This is something that actually the messenger we just read claimed to be responsible for. Verse 10, so I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. However, we know from last week, if you were here with us, um, that uh, the, narr the narrator of Samuel claims that Saul took his own life. 1 Samuel 31, 4 through 5 says, Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword 
and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. It is important for us to believe the narrator's account of this story um, before we believe uh, the messenger's account, and here's why. It is believed that the messenger lied to David in order to gain favor with the one who he believed would become king. He wanted to be able to serve and perhaps get in with David, um, perhaps enough to gain enough favor to then be able to kill him later. However, David surprised the messenger with this ultimate response. The messenger had not counted on Saul's death being good news, had counted on Saul's death being good news to David. But unfortunately for the messenger, David was overcome with this grief. He ultimately had the messenger killed for his hand in being responsible for Saul's death. But then David uh, pauses Again, and he mourns with, this, mourns with this lament in the rest of the first chapter. So continue on with me. Um, let's look at verse 17. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan in order that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jeshar. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul. Listen to these words that he's speaking about Saul, a man who had tried to kill David. The shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious. And in death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful. More wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. This passage, we get a glimpse and an insight of the love that David had had, especially for Jonathan, but the respect that he had for Saul, who was the Lord's anointed king in Israel. We know that David and Jonathan were like brothers. And Jonathan had done everything to serve both his father and David, who had been promised the throne. So when we read this passage, we understand that this wasn't a moment of let's strike up the band and sing, we are the champions. 
That wasn't what David was trying to encourage here. It wasn't our favorite college football team's fight song or anything like that. David wasn't about to lead his men in a victory lap around the city and celebrate his new claim to the throne. This was a deep personal time of grief for David. And as he wept, he led his men in the time of mourning, even instructing them to share the lament with future generations, requiring them to memorize it. The lament focuses on Saul and Jonathan, but David's grief also extended to the nation of Israel, for they had lost their leader. But why would David be so overcome with grief in this moment? With what we know about this complicated relationship, as we've continued to say this morning, we would assume that he was relieved, that finally his time had come. It may be difficult for us to put ourselves in David's shoes here, but we nonetheless have undoubtedly been in circumstances in our own lives when we might have an opportunity to gain something from another person's suffering. We see it in our culture all the time. Politicians seek to elevate their own positions by smearing the character of another. Large businesses are grown at the expense of their employees because of harsh decisions made by leadership. And each of these things is seemingly a part of the norm when it comes to our society. But as Christians, we are called to be different. I want to invite you to open up. We're going to turn to the New Testament now and go to Matthew 5, to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're going to take a look at verses 43 through 48. Jesus is near the middle of his sermon here. And he says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be persons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what, re- what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, Jesus is challenging the easy way out. The easy way, as defined by Jesus here, is to continue to love only those who love us in return. Jesus uses the example of the tax collectors who were representatives of the Roman government. Many of us are aware of kind of how dirty the Israelites viewed tax collectors. They were constantly taking advantage of their positions by extorting people and overcharging for taxes. These tax collectors were despised by their own people. So they had few others in their lives, perhaps, that truly showed them love. And Jesus is pointing out that even they are able able to offer love back to those who love them. 
Jesus is challenging that we should do invariably more than these. Our love should be so much greater by comparison. In our own lives, we are faced with this decision daily. How often are we cut off in traffic and want to blow past the person and then give them that stare, you know? (laughs) Kind of scowl. That's a pretty simple one. But what about bad service at a restaurant? I'm sure we've all experienced that. Or a really slow cashier at a grocery store. Come on. I was reading this to my wife the other day. And before I got to this part, she's like, you do all of that. (laughs) But I I told her, I was like, I have a line in there. I said, my wife can attest to the, that these are areas of struggle for me. Yes, they are very much. Thinking even bigger than that, though, how about approaching and caring for a neighbor who has never seemed to bother to reach out to us? For many of us, our workplaces bring all different types of personalities, which can clash and cause interpersonal disputes. We work hard for promotions and see others get them instead. What is our response in situations like these? You see, Jesus wants to transform our hearts. He wants to help us show the same type of love for others that he has for each one of us. A love that is not earned, but is given out of grace and forgiveness. Here at WCC, we encourage each of you to love where you live because it is our desire to see our communities transformed by the love of Jesus, one neighbor at a time. About, oh, probably about 15 years ago, um, maybe a little more, I was a sophomore in college. Um, That really makes me feel old, by the way. Um, But uh, I uh, got a call um, from my uh, mom and dad. Um, And up to... At this point, my dad had been in ministry um, my whole life, um, and really he still is in ministry. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, we had grown up in this church in Wichita, Kansas, where my dad had been my youth pastor and um, had been there for uh, 14 years, something like that. And I get a call and uh, learn from my dad that he had been let go of the church that uh, he had been serving at for a long time. And it was a mystery to not only our family, but to many in the church as to why this had happened. And um, we understand there were some changes in leadership. And I'm sure that my dad knows more of the story than I do even to this day. Um, But um, there was a a new leader that had come into the church and because of my dad's um, uh, long-time tenure at the, the church, it was a little intimidating um, for this leader. And ultimately, uh, he was able to pull um, the elders on, the leader was able to pull the elders on his side and um, manipulate things and um, have my dad um, let go from the staff on the church. And of course, this was devastating to our family. It was devastating mostly to my dad, of course. And um, 
it, it, it left a lot of hurt feelings. And anytime, you know, when we lose jobs, it, it really hurts no matter where we're at. Um, but the thing about working at a church is that it's a deeply personal job. Um, you get to know the people that you're serving with, and um, we understand that those things do still happen. Um, it's, uh, you know, no one is, I'm not saying that people should not be let go at churches, but when it's kind of unfounded, it was a little bit hard to get past that point of it. And my dad had every reason to be angry, um, had every reason to go and to um, say horrible things about the, the leadership and um, this person who had made this decision and manipulated this decision. And then about three, la- three years later, um, my dad was back in Wichita for um, a conference and ran into this minister. And, uh, and I, I said, well, dad, what did you do? And he said, I gave him a big old hug. And uh, I, you know, I said, wow, um, I don't know how you were able to do that. And he said, well, you know, um, it took time for that to heal a little bit. Um, but my dad just communicated to me that he was so glad that God put it on his heart to forgive this person and to love someone who we might think doesn't deserve it um, when we know that God says differently. That story has stuck with me for a long time and it always will and um, has been an example for me and how I want um, to be able to react in circumstances where I've been hurt by others um, and where love has been um, seemingly reserved. Um, And I'm grateful for uh, these accounts in scripture where we have that reminder as well. I want to close by looking um, back again at David's story. I want to wrap up that because there is promise that David does finally become the king. So meanwhile, back in the Old Testament, we read through, we can go through and read through the chapters 2 through 5 of 2 Samuel. There's a long, drawn-out period where David is uh, forced to still kind of wait. His patience is tested. Uh, In chapter 2, we're told that he is finally anointed king, but not king of Israel. He was named king over the house of Judah, which, if you remember your geography, Israel's up north and Judah's down south, and they're kind of supposed to be the same, but they weren't. It would actually be seven and a half years before David would finally become king of Israel. Through many ups and downs and fierce battles, David had never taken it upon himself to push his way to the throne. He awaited faithfully and allowed God to move that and allowed God to work through the way that David loved people. As we've continued to make our way through this series, we've seen that David has repeatedly shown this obedience. And this passage of David's lament is no different. Some might say that David's pursuit was truly about becoming king. 
But I would argue that David was truly devoted to honoring God above all else. I believe David has set a great example here. And Jesus puts it this way, that you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. As we draw closer to God through our study of his word, he transforms us and helps us to become more like him who is perfect. As humans, we will never be perfect. But we move forward in our our pursuit of God when we are obedient to his word, we honor him and we are pursuing him and our pursuit of God is a pursuit of perfection. Would you pray with me? Our great heavenly father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for a place that we have to come and worship you that we have to come and read your word and allow you to teach us. Lord, as, as we close our time today, I pray that we would be asking ourselves, that we would be searching our hearts. God, where are we honoring you? Where are we showing love to others who don't love us in return? or who have not loved us to begin with. God, how are we allowing you to transform us and helping us to pursue you? God, I pray that we have obedience, that we seek to become more like you each and every day, and that when we are faced with circumstances that only we see that only the only thing that we can see is hurt for us in the end i pray that we would still pursue i pray that we would allow you to come and help us to still honor you regardless of what that outcome might be that we would honor by loving the people that you've called us to love lord we thank you for your son jesus we thank you that we have redemption and freedom in him And I pray that as we close uh, this morning and worship that that we would be able to sing freely to you um, because we know that you have led us out of death through your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.